loud. Yeah, another voice comes in. <laughs> you are listening to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Welcome to Undercurrents. My name is Jenny. I'll be with you for the next half hour along with my co-host, Rebecca. Our guests in the, in the studio, in our virtual studio today, are John Bracey, who's a professor of Afro-M studies at UMass, and Bob Pollan, who's in the Department of Economics and is a co-director of Perry, also at UMass. Um, the date is November 4th. It's Wednesday. It's a little bit after three o'clock in the afternoon. So we're less than 24 hours after the, um, the first polls closed yesterday, which was election day, less than 24 hours, but not that much less. And we still don't know who the winner is. In fact, the state of the election um, is, as the New York Times says, razor thin between Biden and Trump. So let me just um, introduce my guests a little bit further and then I'm gonna pass the microphone over to them. Um, John Bracey has been at UMass since 1972. He was very active in the civil rights movements in the 1960s and has never stopped since then, as far as I can tell. He's an author of many books, including um, a volume, this is the long title, An African-American Mosaic Documentary History from the slave trade to the 20th century, and has been asked to do, write the introductions to many other books, including this title caught my interest, Facing Reality, which brings us to today by James and Lee. Bob Poland is also the author of many books. Between the two of them, you can fill up some of your shelves. Um, most recently, he's written with co-author Noam Chomsky, The Climate Crisis, and the Global Green New Deal. So Bob and John, welcome to Undercurrents. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time on this, on this strange day to um, chat with Rebecca and myself. Before we went on air, I checked um, the New York Times numbers for the state of the pandemic in the US. And they're quoting now over 9.5 million cases in the U.S. with over 92,000 yesterday. So here the country is in a situation of large-scale sickness and death um, with an economy that has seen so many job losses for so many people, um, a year that was, um, was punctuated by wildfires, hurricanes, drought, and other signs of climate change, a year that was published with extreme police brutality and protests that followed. And a, a year or four years that have also been punctuated by various signs of the erosion of United States democracy, at least the version that I've grown up in. Okay. So I wanna ask you to reflect or talk about what is the state of the nation today? This is a strange place to be and given the gravity of that just partial list of critical issues that I went through, given the gravity of, of those situations, why are we in such a close race between these two very different candidates? Um, so who well, would like to, go John? Go ahead, John. Well, if, if, if you look at 
you know, 1919 and 1918, you'd see the same set of factors. Uh, they, they, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it, but there are things that that come together at certain points in time. And what what I see is the put on the table is what the country wants to be. What how, how have they decided to to define what America means, you know, for the future? And there are two absolutely competing visions, and they're not reconcilable. I mean, the first one got settled with a four-year civil war. I mean, slavery didn't just end itself. I mean, like almost, you had a million casualties. And in order to drive the black population back down and to uh, you know, keep them in Jim Crow, you had to lynch almost 5,000 people. Uh, and when people moved out of the South and they moved in the cities, you had riots, which were pogroms against black people. Uh, and, you know, and 2021 is the anniversary of the Tulsa riot, where it's the first time in American history a, air, a city was bombed from the air, uh, American citizens by other American citizens. And so the that piece of it, if you look at African American history, is just a recurrence or a re-emergence uh, uh, re of the, the attitude that a substantial number of Black Americans, Black Americans have seen in the way white Americans view them. And the issue is, will we be treated as citizens or are we still aliens? Are we like non, quite not Americans? And there's a substantial body of white Americans that don't see us as Americans. And they, they talk that way, you know, uh, they you know, emphasize foreign names, they mispronounce names. Uh, they bring up the most vile kind of stereotypes that, you know, most people thought had gone away, but they haven't really gone away. And you have a resurgence of those types of organizations that worked the first time around. You know, it's not the Confederate Army, it's the Klan uh, or the Knights of the White Camellia. Uh, and if you have the civil rights movement, you have again the resurgence of the White Citizens Council. And so militias running around uh, uh, attacking protesters and, and Black people who want their rights is not something new to African Americans. Uh, What's, what's new is the sanctioning of it and building it into the body politic itself, short of a civil war. You know, I mean, we, we didn't like people about 1859 than, than 2020. Uh, and the country has to decide which America they want to be. Uh, do you want to acknowledge the, the, the shakiness of the foundings, you know, genocide against Native Americans, you know, stealing of land, you know, slavery for 250 years, and, and try to reconcile that to build a community from that. Or do you, you say, well, it worked, you know, worked this far, why don't we just keep doing it? And I think what Trump is uh, appealed to is, well, it's worked this far, why don't we just keep doing this as long as we can? Uh, and the anxiety is the, the constant talking about that the white uh, majority will be a minority in 20 years. And if I really believed in keeping whiteness intact, I would say, well, that gives me 20 years to figure out how to stop it. And so that's what you're seeing. You know, if I was a white male and saw the world coming out from under me, I wouldn't just sit back and say, okay, this is the way it is. I mean, a lot of people do, but other people say, okay, 20 years, what can we do? Build a wall to stop the Latinos from coming in, you know, turn the police loose on black people, you know, ban abortion again so you keep women under control and try to hold on to patriarchy, you know, and racism and sexism as long as you, uh, as long as you can. Uh, and dump as money as you can to the top of the society so that the ruling class can have enough to pass out when they want to buy people off if necessary, which is what's happening now. Uh, and that's, that's not unusual. What's unusual is that it's that we see it. 
this is stuff you read about in history books. Uh, uh, it never occurred to me 50 years ago that when we talked about the decline of the American empire, that in fact, it would fall on us, that you would be under it when it was declining, and we hadn't counted on that. Uh, but I think that's what you're seeing. The, the, the imperial kind of strategy that kept the U.S. a dominant world power, you know, almost singly up, you know, up through the 1950s and 60s, uh, no longer no longer exists. You know, China, India, you know, uh, countries like Brazil and Nigeria with these millions and millions of people are making it a whole bunch of one A's and not one uh, one A and one right on top. But Trump is saying, no, no, we can still be on top if we have to kill people to do it, and that's what this is. That's what we're looking at. You know, like if we got there by force, we'll continue to use force. Uh, and an election is just another thing that kind of calms people down a little bit. But if it doesn't work, then you use force. And he he doesn't mind saying that openly. I think that's what's new. Bob, would you like to um, sure. respond? So to uh, I, I think those are really critical points. And I was thinking a lot last night about how fundamental uh, racism is shaping uh, what we're observing now. And, but, and so since John covered it so well, I'll, I'll come at things from a, <coughs> a somewhat different angle that I think is compatible. The thing I wanna focus on is this term that's been out there for a while. And uh, a lot of times people don't know what it means. I'll try to make it clear. And the term is neoliberalism. Um, so neoliberalism is really a variant of capitalism uh, that is much more aggressive in defense and support of the uh, interests of capital and uh, much less uh, supportive of even some kind of class compromise where well-being is, there's efforts to share well-being and expand opportunity. So if we had to uh, set a marker for when neoliberalism starts to become ascendant in the United States, uh, it would be 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. And the very, 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 very first thing Reagan did on getting elected, us old people remember it, uh, was to um, fire the uh, uh, air traffic controllers who were on strike as a union. And uh, he came into office. There was no issue of negotiating anything. I mean, and these people obviously have a vital job, which is traffic, uh, air traffic safety. He just said, you're all fired. And uh, I'll figure out something else, but you're all fired. And that was this uh, extremely aggressive act against, and, and these are not, you know, uh, average wage workers. These are high wage uh, workers with a lot of credentials and background. But anyway, he got rid of all of them. He said, I don't, and I'm not gonna have anything to do with unions. Um, now, if you trace from 1980 to the present, two basic trends. One is that the average wage for a non-supervisory worker, black, white, all workers, the average wage is basically been stagnant or declined modestly uh, relative to 1980. Uh, so that's more than 40 years that the average worker hasn't seen a raise. Whereas uh, 
the average income for people in the top 1% has uh, uh, quadrupled. So we have this massive disparity in inequality, uh, which has prevailed. And uh, it has prevailed during Republican regimes and Democratic regimes. And so the Democratic Party, which had presented itself as the defender of the working people, unions, and uh, social equality, uh, basically uh, abandoned that role. They, they maintained the role uh, in, in that level of rhetoric, but in terms of fighting for things, they basically abandoned it. So this is the basis on which uh, you see this shift and the white working class uh, out of the Democratic Party, because they said, what, what for? They're, they're not supporting us. Then you get this guy, Trump, who is obviously a charlatan, but at least he says, I'm fighting for you and the white working class. And his attitude uh, that all of the other politicians are uh, lying to you, they're corrupt, and you know he's not that far from describing things accurately. So I think that's really been critical. Uh, I'll mention two areas in which I think this has had major impacts and it had an effect on the election. One is with respect to climate change. Now the issue on climate change, of course, is um, saving the planet, uh, but it's also how we say there's different ways to go about it. And a lot of people think that, well, this, all, this whole thing, it's a bunch of environmentalists and it's gonna hurt my job. It's gonna hurt, it's gonna attack my income. Obviously that's especially the case for anyone that has anything to do with the fossil fuel industry. And they're right, those jobs are going to go away. And a lot of those jobs are, are good paying jobs. And so uh, that has created this ultra aggressive support for Trump who says, I'm not gonna, I'm not taking away your jobs. And then of course, during the debates, it was this issue around fracking in Pennsylvania. So even Trump, uh, even uh, Biden said, no, I don't wanna stop fracking. Actually, he has said that he wanted to stop fracking. And certainly within the Democratic party more generally, that has been the position and that is the right position. The other thing that you have to say though, is we are gonna make sure every single worker in the fossil fuel industry is placed in another job, their pensions are protected, what we call a just transition. The final thing I'll mention is with the pandemic. I mean, it's been a disaster in terms of the management. If you compare death rates in the US versus almost every other country on the planet, you know, the US, the death rate is about 700 per million people. Uh, if you look at Germany, it's say 200. If you look at Australia, it's like 20. Uh, Japan, 25. Vietnam, like 0.1. You can manage this pandemic. It's just that we aren't doing it. So the problem is here again, why didn't, why didn't everybody blame uh, Trump? Well, a lot of people did, but a lot of people like the thing that says that Trump is saying, Reopen, you know, let's get the economy moving again. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. So uh, again, a critical thing that needs to have been done, which obviously wasn't done was, yes, we can protect people, 
But uh, how do we do it in a way that also doesn't uh, really compromise desperately people's livelihoods? And that's the thing that still hasn't come out. So I think those things were all at play. I will mention, I we discussed this in my class a couple hours ago. I wanna mention one interesting thing that came up, which I thought was pretty interesting that uh, somebody said, well, you know, your, what your story about neoliberalism, um, actually, if you look at the Biden program, it's very progressive. And he took a lot of stuff from Bernie. Um, and that that's why Trump kept calling uh, Biden a socialist and he's for Medicare for all and so forth. So um, uh, the more positive spin would be, well, maybe Biden is embracing a lot of the left and it's just that it takes a while for all this to sink in. And just as one interesting side point on this, in Florida that Trump won, uh, the minimum wage at $15 an hour was on the ballot and it won with a 70% 70, 70 support. So people will support uh, an egalitarian program, uh, a anti-neoliberal program, but it has to be done in a way that is recognizable and that somebody's ready to fight for it. Yeah, but the history of this country is that you can stop any progressive program by putting a race on top of it. Uh, Trump, all that, all that is maybe, you know, factually true, but Trump is running on a white supremacist program. Uh, he's talking to people, openly talking about protecting suburbs from black men coming to rape white women. I mean, this is primitive stuff. Uh, he has people, you know, going out and attacking people who should be their allies. Uh, and there's no, there's no basis for a, a class coalition until somebody puts race on the table. When you put race on the table, then Trump attacks it and you know, turns the police loose, turns you know, white workers loose and said, it's not our fault, it's their fault. And that, that to me is the overarching definition of what he's doing. I mean, there's no sane reason why a white working class person would support Trump at any level. He didn't know anything for them. Uh, any sentient being that's a white worker can see that Trump has not brought back jobs. He's taking away your health care. He's talking about bringing jobs back that will kill you, like going to bring back coal industry. I'll tell you what, you can die black lung again. Why would people support somebody that wants to bring back a job that will kill them and then take away their health care to make sure they die uh, or invite them to a rally where you risk your life? And they do that. Uh, the, the, he has unleashed forces that haven't they've been hidden for a long, long time. You know, you have openly Confederate flags. You have people with stickers walking around the street. Uh, and I think I think we had a position where where faith in Trump outplays any kind of rational arguments. He does he doesn't make rational arguments. He doesn't feel any need to. Uh, he makes these very primitive arguments that appeal to a certain segment of the American population as white population as they've always had. You know, I mean, I did a lecture on how racism hurts white Americans and pointed out that uh, white workers get hurt by racism, but they keep doing it. You know, you know, the most extreme cases, you know, World War II, when you had blood banks with white blood and black blood, and you had white soldiers had to sign a, a permission slip that if they were dying, they would you could trap you could put black blood in their veins to keep them alive. A lot of people didn't sign it. I mean, there are white soldiers who are willing to die rather than have something that they think is black blood put in their veins. You know, I mean that's that's the level of race in this country. And you're not gonna, you know, uh you're not going to convince somebody at the economic level if you're not in the same place as they are. You know, if I'm not in the union, then I can't go on strike with you. 
if I have to fight to get into an apprenticeship program and still don't get a job, then I can't, you know, I don't, I don't share your class position in a, you know, race is the determining thing in the world that I live in. Uh, my sons make a lot of money. My daughter worked in the, the uh, Obama administration as a lawyer. Uh, her husband walks out of the, in the street, he's a black man, doesn't matter. My son goes to the store, he's a black man, no matter where he had money or not. He could be driving a Mercedes or walking, he's a black man. Uh, we're at the same place we were in, in 1900 when the goal is, that's what Black Lives Matter is like the anti-lynching campaign. It's not a program, it's can you be alive? You know, it's not a program, so they don't have a program. The program is, can I walk out of my house to the store and back without being killed? Right? Why is that a possibility? That's what you have back on the table today. Can I walk out of my house to the store and back without being killed by a policeman who will get off? Policemen who are so uh, used to doing this that they don't even duck the cameras. You know, I mean, that was hard find about the George Floyd thing. This guy looked into a camera killing somebody, did not say, like in my day, take the camera, shut it off stared into the camera as he murdered somebody because he knew nothing would happen to him. He said, no, nothing will happen to me. I've done this before. I can do it again. That's the level that race is baked into the society. And any, any program you come up with, you can stop by saying it benefits black people. You know, more white people than black people are on welfare. More white people than black people need food stamps. More white people than black people need all these benefits, healthcare and everything else. But you can shut it down by calling it Obamacare. Like that's all you have to do. Make it black and white people say, I don't want that. You know, they need health care, but you say a black person gave it to you, I don't want it. You know, that's that's where we are in this country. There's no way you can explain the 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 other kind of irrationality of white working people acting against their interests, clearly in their interests, demonstrated interests, you know, jobs going in Detroit. There are no black people in those factories, they're robots. You know, those factories are gone forever. You know, they used to have 50,000 workers. Back in the 60s when we organized League of Revolutionary Black Workers, Dodge Main was the largest factory in the world. I think they had, what, like, you know, 50,000 people. China has factories with a million people. There's no way that's going to, they're not going to bring auto, you know, manufacturing back to Detroit except 4,000 engineers that have robots that work three shifts without getting a break and they don't get lunch and they don't get vacation time. That's not happening. Why then would these people support Trump? He has no program for them. He hasn't proposed a program. He doesn't want a program. His argument is they will get you, you know. So we've been going, or I should say that John, our guest in the studio or guest in our virtual studio, um, John Bracey and Bob Pollan have been going full steam. And now we have about seven minutes left. Um, I'd like to give you each the opportunity to, in terms of, different topics that you've been focusing on, how can we move forward? What do you see? Let's, let's end up in terms of looking towards the future and what is the way um, that we can move forward as a people or just as people? <laughs> well, I don't disagree with your emphasis on racism at all, John. Um, in fact, if we study the experience of the New Deal, the, the real the most egalitarian period in, in policy in this country, uh, um, it was uh, only possible because of the deals that Roosevelt made with white racists in the yeah. South. And uh, people don't think about that in terms of the history of the New Deal. So, you know, you're, what you're saying is completely compatible with what I'm saying. But uh, to Jenny's point, 
you know, what are the ways that we can move forward? Well, let's try to see some of the positives. Um, for one thing, uh, I don't want to jinx it, but it, 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 I mean, I think the odds are better than even now that Trump actually will have lost. Uh, so that is a positive. And so that means that more, and, any, and it, certainly in terms of the popular vote, more people have voted to reject him uh, by a lot in terms of the popular vote. Uh, racism is certainly, uh, certainly, as you said, baked into our culture in a really, really deep way. But that doesn't mean that everybody supports it. It means that a, a high percentage, but not everybody. And therefore, I think the opportunities to create um, more egalitarian type uh, variant of capitalism uh, will also diminish the, uh, the virulence that we're seeing uh, in, the, in the upsurge of racism. It's not, not gonna go away and never will go away, but it, I think it will uh, weaken the grip on the overall society if we have a society, an economy, a policy, which embraces you know, people who are not just the super rich people on Wall Street. Yeah. Not, it doesn't mean that it's all gonna go away, but I think that's, at least that's what I like to think. And I can just say myself, a lot, a lot of the work I do doing right now is with uh, union groups and other uh, groups that try to bring together environmentalists and, and unions, and I do the research. And I think that's a really positive development. And I'm really impressed with the commitment of people around these things as a way to break through. In fact, I just did some work in Ohio, and I'm doing in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And, yeah. I, and I'm very the positive. Is, the movement that has galvanized the country is Black Lives Matter. Uh, if you don't have a, a progressive movement led by Black people or people of color, then it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, because you can't, you can't trust a white-led movement to look after Black interests. Black people have to assert their own interests. And so when Black Lives Matter moves, they include everybody. Everybody, you know, everybody shows up for their demonstrations. They have 20 million people in the street. You know, and the reason it grows and the reason it continues to grow is because they, they accept the leadership of black people. I think that's what's terrifying Trump and terrifying the right. Uh, nothing could be more shocking than, a, than a, a patriarchal, sexist, you know, racist white man than to see his daughter standing next to a black man wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt. That's as terrifying as the black man wearing the Black Lives Matter T-shirt. That's real. That's where I see the future is. The, the future is in a generation of young people who grew up not afraid of black people, uh, whose only cultural life is black cultural life. There's no white youth culture anymore. Everything is hip hop. Everything. You know, there's, there's, you have to make up some kind of white music. And I don't even know what that is anymore. And I know young people don't listen to anything called white music. Uh, and so the future, I think, will be in the hands of young people who are going to have their own formations. I don't, I don't think what we set up and the structures that we put into place are going to be the ones that are going to make the future. I think, you know, talking to young people and I get interviewed, you know, once a week by 18-year-olds who ask me, what was it like to get beat up and all this stuff? And I said, I can't tell you what to do because what we did was for our time. You have thing, you do things we could never have done. You have mobilized more people, right? You know, you mobilized 10 times to march on Washington repeatedly. You know, we brought out 250,000 people. If you said do it the next month, we couldn't do it, right? Repeatedly for the past six months, they are bringing millions of people out in the street on fundamental issues that include everybody. They, they've excluded no issue 
in Black Lives Matter. You know, things that are just hanging on the edge, they're still hanging on. And so I, I, I'm not, I, I don't think that what we did in the past is gonna tell us what the future is gonna look like. I think young people are gonna work their way through a vision that will get them to the world that they see, which is a world that is much more egalitarian. You know, a world that that is a, a world where they decide, you know, who gets along with who, and that our vision is just, is dead, it's over. You know, and that's the future, you know, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing as much of it as I can. So I hate to interrupt this discussion. I think we could easily have gone another half hour. I want to um, thank my guests on Undercurrents, um, John Gracie, who is the person before me you heard speaking, John Bracey in the Afro Department at UMass, and Bob Poland in the Department of Economics in Perry at UMass. You can find what they're up to by easily Googling their names, um, Bob Poland, John Bracey, and Rebecca and I want to thank you guys for coming and joining us um, on Undercurrents. You're tuned to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Rebecca didn't say anything.